You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon we begin a new series of sermons. We're going to be going through the book of Mark over the next several months. And today we're going to start with Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. That's our reading for this afternoon. It's also the text for the sermon. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Beloved congregation of Christ, for all intents and purposes, the end of summer is at hand. Though if you were a legalist, you might want to quibble about there still being maybe three more weeks left. For all intents and purposes, Labor Day is the end of summer. And the day after tomorrow, it's back to school for many of us, the younger members of our congregation. And I imagine that it's going to be hard for some of our students. They've gotten used to the more relaxed pace of summer sleeping in. When you're young, it sometimes seems like you can sleep forever until somebody comes along, that is, with some cold water to splash in your face and wake you up. It's happened to me once or twice, and I imagine that some of you have experienced it too. You're sound asleep. Maybe you've been sleeping 10, maybe 12 hours. And then mom or dad, maybe a brother or sister, come silently into your room with the coldest water they can find for a rude awakening. What happens in our text is a lot like that experience. John and his ministry, that was God's cold water splashed on his people's face to wake them up. The prophets at this time had long been silent It had been many, many years before the voice of a prophet had been heard in the land. Among the people, there were some like Simeon and Anna who were eagerly waiting for the Messiah. But many others had simply fallen asleep. There was little sensitivity to or longing for the fulfillment of God's promises. Instead, the focus of many people was on the here and now particularly the political situation. The land and the people were under the dominion of Rome and its puppets. 
the burning issue for these people was, how can we be saved from Rome? Into this context, John came with his preaching and his baptism. And as his ministry is presented to us in the Gospel according to Mark, John came to announce the coming of salvation, a new day dawning. The first verse of our text serves as a a kind of a title for the book, but it also sets the tone. We're told that this is the beginning of the good news of the Christ, the Son of God. Mark chooses to begin this story of the good news of salvation by highlighting John's ministry, a ministry that was foretold in the Old Testament. In passages like Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, we find that there was a prophetic expectation of a forerunner. John was this forerunner who would make the way ready for the Messiah. He was the one who would splash cold water on Israel's face to get them ready for the Christ. Well, significantly, he did this in the desert and at the Jordan River. There was a message in that. Israel had to pass through the desert. They had to come through the Jordan River to reach the promised land with Moses and Joshua. The desert and the Jordan River were preparations, or you could call them steps, along the way to the greatest salvation event in the Old Testament. And so it was fitting for John to be out in the desert, out also in the middle of the Jordan River, splashing cold water on Israel's face to wake them up telling them again that their salvation was at hand and to get ready for it. And so this afternoon we hear God's Word preached with the theme, John made the way ready for the Lord Jesus. And in his ministry we hear three things. First of all, a call to repentance. Second, a call to prophecy. And then finally, a call to awareness. Verse 4 tells us that John was preaching he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is typical, as we're going to see, Mark packs a lot into these few words. And what we need to do is we need to unpack these words if we really want to understand what it was that John was preaching. The first thing we need to do is to consider the place of baptism in the Old Covenant. Many times when we hear about baptism or we we think about baptism, we, we think that it's just something that came about in the New Testament era. However, baptism also existed in the Old Testament. Baptism in the Old Testament time was something for Gentiles. If a non Jew wanted to become part of God's people, there were three things required there was circumcision for the men, of course, baptism, and then finally, sacrificial offerings. People who were Jewish by birth were never baptized. Baptism was something of a a ritual cleansing just for the Gentiles. And that wasn't something explicitly commanded in the Old Testament Scriptures. 
Rather, it was one of those practices that the Jews had introduced in the centuries before Christ's incarnation, a practice that cannot explicitly be found in the Old Testament. So the fact is, John was not introducing something totally foreign or or innovative. The Jews would recognize baptism as part of their religious life. What was new was the fact that they had to be baptized. John was saying that the people of God, his covenant people, had become unclean, dirty, in need of washing. They had become no different than the Gentiles. And in such a condition, they would certainly not recognize, nor would they listen to the voice of God's anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ. And so for a Jew to let himself be baptized by John, that'd be quite a step. Being baptized by John would be the same as saying, I need to be cleansed. I am unclean. I am dirty and sinful. I am no different than the Gentiles. Really, what this amounted to was a humbling before God. John preached that the Jews had to receive this baptism. Mark characterizes it as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a baptism associated with repentance. If the Jews were repentant, then this was the baptism for them. To be clear, we should briefly consider what repentance really means. We shouldn't take it for granted that just because we hear that word so much that we, we always know what it means. The New Testament word for repent in Greek is metanoeo. Metanoeo. Literally, that word, metanoeo, means to have a change of mind. To have a change of attitude. A change of thinking. And in this particular instance, the Jews had to have a change of mind about a number of things. For instance, they, they had been wrong about their hopes and expectations. They had hoped for political deliverance from, from Rome, for military conquest or deliverance. And they should have been focusing on the messianic hope. They'd been wrong about themselves. In their pride, they developed all kinds of rules and laws. And as they added law upon law, they obscured the meaning and the, the true focus of Scripture, which was the coming Messiah, God's promises. They'd been wrong about God. They developed a way of thinking about God. They made God into a new image that there would be a God who would be pleased with their external works of the law. They created a God for themselves whose favor they could earn by good works. And these and so many other ways, their thinking, their acting, all out of line. And at the root of it all was pride. And for them, the bottom line of repentance was to humble themselves 
and take the baptism of John as the expression of that humility. Now it's worth noting further that this repentance is said to be for the forgiveness of sins. Now you could read that and understand that to be saying that the people would have their sins forgiven only if they would repent and receive John's baptism. Now we find this passage in the pages of the New Testament. But we quickly forget that this is still in the Old Testament era. In the Old Testament era, the forgiveness of sins was associated with the sacrificial system. The sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Because of its connection with the coming Christ, the sacrificial system was the divinely appointed way in which sins were forgiven in the Old Testament. And so when it comes to this baptism of John, does this represent a shift in this respect? Are we to think now that there are two different ways at this time to have your sins forgiven? That you could choose to either make sacrifices in the temple or you could repent and have the baptism of John? Take your pick. No. Keep in mind, brothers and sisters, and we're going to see this as we go through this series, that Mark is very brief. He doesn't tell us everything that was said and done by John. He doesn't tell us everything that was said and done by those who heard his preaching. Keep in mind also that we're speaking here about God's people. Covenant people. If they were truly repentant, wouldn't they have turned their backs on self-willed worship? The truly repentant would have offered sacrifices, would have followed God's Word, and thereby received the forgiveness of their sins. You see, John was not offering a new way of salvation, a new way of forgiveness, a new way of reconciliation with God. He was directing people back to God and His ways revealed in Scripture. He was directing people back to the Bible that pointed to Christ. And in this way, John was making the people ready for the ministry of Christ Himself. Having humbled themselves and having undergone something of a a reformation, the Jews would be more likely to listen to the preaching of the Messiah. And indeed, as we flip through the pages of Mark, that's what we see happening. As we go through this series on the book of Mark, again, we're going to see that. Droves of people would come out to to hear the Lord Jesus, to hear Him preach and teach and to, to see what He was doing. And no doubt part of this can be attributed to God using John to prepare the way. What does this mean for us? Let's reflect for a moment. Are there ways in which we like the Jews of John's day, ways that we've missed the boat, so to speak? Are there ways in which we, God's people today, need to have cold water splashed in our faces to wake us up? In our church and in our personal lives, where are we sleeping? Where are we missing what's important? You know, brothers and sisters, one of the greatest dangers today is that we are so comfortable in church and society. 
we don't really have to fight for anything. So much is just given to us. It's often said that the devil loves conflict. But peace and tranquility can also be his playground. The kind of peace we experience now in church and society, that can be a time for spiritual growth. That it can also be a time where many of us fall asleep spiritually. We begin to take things for granted. We become nominal or, or cultural Christians. The church is our, is our circle of family and friends, but not much more. So I ask you again, where might we today as church and as individuals have to repent and wake up to what God calls us to be? That's something to think about. Let's move on from here and consider the prophetic element in John's ministry. We've already noted that this text takes place in the Old Testament era. In fact, we can take this a step further and we can say that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Mark and the other Gospel writers, they say as much when they tell us what John looked like. We're told that he was wearing clothing made of camel's hair. We're told that he had a leather belt around his waist. If you look in 2 Kings 1, verse 8, we find a, a similar description there of the prophet Elijah. And in John's Gospel, after hearing that John the Baptist wasn't the Messiah, the first person the Jews thought of was Elijah. They said, well, if you're not the Christ, you're not the Messiah, you must be Elijah. Or you think you're Elijah. John very clearly had a prophetic appearance to him. John was a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were sent by God to reveal His will and to teach the people. We often forget that prophecy is not in the first place like some kind of divine fortune-telling. Prophecy is not like a a divine horoscope. Sometimes prophecy had something of that character, telling the future. But most often, prophecy in the Old Testament was about change. It was about challenge. God would speak through a prophet in an effort to grab His people, to to teach them something valuable, to lead them. Sometimes the message had to do with judgment. When the people were comfortable, God would try and shake them up with a prophetic message. Sometimes the message had to do with comfort and salvation. When the people were suffering, God would come with words of encouragement and and words of hope. Both aspects, salvation and judgment, both of them are seen in the total picture that we get of John's ministry when we look at all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's good reason for that because John did come to preach both judgment and salvation. But in Mark's Gospel, the Holy Spirit really emphasizes the salvation aspect of John's prophetic ministry. We're told in verse 4 that John's ministry had to do with the forgiveness of sins. That's salvation, isn't it? We're told 
that large numbers of people from Judea and Jerusalem flocked to John. That's exciting. That's great. That's very positive. We're told even more that they, that they confessed their sins and they were baptized. Read that in verse 5. You know, in, in Mark, the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us about the, the back and forth between John and the Pharisees. We read about that in, in John's Gospel. And we don't read about the, the winnowing fork and the unquenchable fire and John calling the Jews broods of vipers or he doesn't speak here in Mark about an axe being laid to the root of the tree. We read about those things in Matthew and Luke. But not in Mark. Mark has a different emphasis. An emphasis on a prophetic proclamation of salvation for God's people. John's message was that the Messiah was at the threshold. He had not quite entered in, but he was nearly here. This was the promised anointed one who would crush the head of the serpent. This was the one who would fulfill all the promises, all the types, all the symbols, all the shadows of God's covenant. He was almost here. Standing in the desert, in the Jordan River, John proclaimed that the Christ, the true Joshua, was here to bring the people into the promised land of God's rest. The whole purpose of John's ministry was to get people ready for the big day when Christ, their Savior, would come on the stage. John is described in the original of 1 verse 7 as a herald. It doesn't appear that way in our translation. But literally, the Greek says, and he heralded, saying. Now, a herald had a special job in the ancient world. A herald was a, a messenger who worked for the king. He would be sent ahead to announce good news on behalf of the king. And so in the first chapter of Mark, John is such a herald. He's announcing good news on behalf of the king. Heralds typically didn't bring bad news. The armies took care of that. John was a herald bringing good news. And his message was the king's message of good news. And the good news was that the king himself was coming. The anointed one of God who had more power than anyone who had ever come before. The one to whom John paled in comparison. The one whom John didn't even feel worthy to bend down and take on the most menial of tasks, untying the thongs of his sandals. This prophecy was good news for God's people, and it was proclaimed with the hope that they would prepare themselves for his arrival. When you know the king is coming, and you know that he's a good king and he loves you, naturally you're going to get ready. And when Christ did appear, then indeed John faded away. John the prophet's work was done. Christ the King took over. And Christ the King was also anointed Christ the prophet. And as time moved on, Christ appointed under prophets. And after He ascended into heaven, Christ continued His prophetic ministry 
through the apostles and, and through others. He continued to send out heralds with good news from the King. And we today are among the others. The others with whom Christ is continuing His prophetic ministry. Because we share in His anointing. We too are prophets. And as such, we're called to to boldly and, and winsomely speak of the coming of the King. We're told to prophesy that He has come once for salvation. We're to prophesy that He will come again for salvation. And to whom shall we prophesy? Well, when we consider a question like that, naturally our, our thoughts go to others we might know who aren't believers. And they're definitely included. But today, let's take our cue from what we read in our text. Because John was not a missionary preacher in the sense that he was sent out to the nations who had never heard the Gospel. John was a prophet within the nation of Israel. He worked primarily among the people who had been taught the Scriptures, however inconsistent that teaching might have been. John was not working among the Gentiles, but among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, when we consider our prophetic task this afternoon, let's take our cue from that. Following the lines of our text, our prophetic task begins here, among the people of God. We're to encourage one another to wake up to the fact that Christ has come once for salvation. We're to encourage one another to wake up to the reality that Christ will come again for the fullness of our redemption. We're going to be doing this as, as peers, as brothers and sisters with one another as we meet together in Bible studies in our homes and, and in this church building. We'll be doing that. This afternoon, I especially want to mention how this takes place through our families. Some people seem to have the idea that the, well, they may not say it, there is this idea that the spiritual instruction of children is primarily the responsibility of the church and the school. In other words, our children primarily get their spiritual nourishment through the pastors and through school teachers. And perhaps we can add on to that the gems and cadet counselors, the people who teach little lambs, and so on. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to our children, the first line of prophecy is not the pastor or the teacher or anybody else. It's the parents, especially the fathers. Over and over again, you read in Scripture how parents are, are primarily responsible for the spiritual development of their children. And there are a number of different ways that you can facilitate that. You can help it along. But the best place to do that is during regular daily family worship. That's not my intention to go into the ins and outs of family worship this afternoon. If you, when you leave the worship service, there's a table at the back, and on that table there is a pamphlet that deals with family worship. 
you want to learn more about it, that pamphlet is there for you. But it suffice to say that if we desire to see our children, God's children really, if we want to see those children serving Him in a meaningful way, we need to be serious about family worship. I know families these days are are busy, but then we need to become creative, find ways to get around our busyness. We need to find ways to comprehensively teach and disciple our children so that they in turn will disciple their children and not only them, but also others who don't know the Savior, who've never been taught the Scriptures. And the issue here comes down to our priorities in life. Who or what is most important to us? The Christ who has come and will come again? Or someone or something else? We're prophets. What message do we as prophets want to communicate to each other? Especially to our children. Let's now briefly consider the call to awareness in John's ministry. John's ministry was a wake-up call. And like all wake-up calls, this one had to do with the time. John knew what time it was. People of Israel didn't. John knew that the time for the Messiah had come. The people didn't. So his task was to let them know that now was the time. He had to make them aware of where they were living in redemptive history. They were living on the threshold of the greatest moment in human history. They were living at the close of the Old Testament era and the beginning of the New Testament. In a short three years, the Old Testament sacrificial system still in place at the time of our text, is going to be fulfilled. The curtain of the temple would be torn, symbolizing the fact that God was done with the temple. What an incredible time to have been alive. Three years. Such a short period of time. Many of those who heard John's preaching would have lived to see his prophecy in verse 8 fulfilled, where he said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In three short years, many of those people would have been present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples. That was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that John was speaking of. Those who had believed would have looked back on this with amazement. John said it, and it happened. I'm sure that many of them would have saw it as a a privilege to live during this eventful time. But now there's us. We live 2,000 years later. 2,000 is a lot more than three. We live after Christ's ascension. We live after Pentecost. We live before the second coming. The tendency is there for us to lose the awareness of where we are in redemptive history. Also to forget about our privileges. 
the privileges that belong to this time in which we live. We have a, a book that's thousands of years old, tells us all these things. Maybe we become a bit dull to it. And so are we aware of where we are in history? Do we really believe that Christ's return could happen at any moment, ushering in the age to come? And do we live like we believe that? Do we reflect with thankfulness on the privileges we have from living at this moment? Now think about it. Just think about it with respect to that book that's in front of you. Your Bible. A completed Bible. Genesis to Revelation. And the fact that all of us can own so many Bibles. And the fact that we can read those Bibles. Those facts would have astounded believers living just a few centuries ago. And not only that, we live with the Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts. The Almighty God dwelling with us. You ever reflect on that? Or more often, do you just take that for granted? If you're like me, it's more likely the latter. So brothers and sisters, take a moment sometime yet today and just say it slowly and reflect on it. I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Because you have. What does that mean for you? We're so rich and we're so privileged. We should be so thankful. Brothers and sisters, we need the awareness the awareness of where we are in history and who we are as a result, how richly blessed we are. As we look to the future, naturally we don't know when the Savior will come again. But our text this afternoon encourages us to keep our eyes open. Stay awake. The Lord Jesus has come. He will come again with power and with salvation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.